This podcast includes frank discussions of mature themes that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast is intended to provide encouragement and support through personal storytelling. The views expressed are the opinions of the participants and not intended to be medical, legal, clinical, or professional information or advice of any kind. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. 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 Welcome, 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 welcome to the Bubble Hour. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from power. Weakness head on me. Jean McCarthy, and you're listening to The Bubble Hour. Hello, and welcome to The Bubble Hour Archives, a treasure trove of episodes ranging from 2012 to 2022. I'm recovery advocate and author Jean McCarthy. I joined The Bubble Hour as a host in season two. Together with other hosts over the years, Ellie, Lisa, Amanda, and Catherine, we all extend to you our gratitude for listening and a heartfelt wish that this podcast will find a welcome home in your recovery toolkit. The resources mentioned on the show are available at thebubblehour.com, including information on the online support group called the BFB, or Booze Free Brigade, often mentioned on the show. Now, if you're hearing this message, you're listening to one of our free archived episodes, and we'll make sure that there are loads of these available for you to enjoy. These are partial versions of the original recordings, and if you want to hear more, you can listen to full versions and the entire back catalog ad-free by joining us on Patreon. So just head to patreon.com slash thebubblehour to learn more. I'll also put a link in the show notes to make it even easier for you to find that. So, all right then, enjoy the show. Hello, this is Ellie, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real, real women tell real stories of addiction and recovery and offer real hope. And tonight we have um, a special co-host, Sabelle, who is here along with my usual co-host, Lisa. We are so excited to have a special guest here tonight, Sasha Skoblik, who is author of the book Unwasted, My Lush Sobriety. Her book is based on her popular essays for the New York Times blog, Proof Alcohol and American Life. And currently, Sasha is a Rosalind Carter Fellow for Mental Health Journalism through the Carter Center in Atlanta. Among other things, she writes about mental health, addiction, and pop fiction. She is also a columnist at The Fix, where she tackles the science of addiction and a frequent contributor to The Huffington Post. And she's also a contributing editor at The New New Republic. Formerly a senior editor at Reader's Digest, Sasha has written about everything from space camp to Pulp Fiction. So, Sasha, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. We're just absolutely thrilled to have you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. But a lot of people listening will have read your book. I've read it and loved it. I've read it more than once. But it would be great if you could just maybe tell us a little bit about your story, and then we'll launch into questions and comments and uh, take it from there. Okay. Well, almost every man in my family is an alcoholic on both sides, including my father. And like a really good feminist, I decided to break that glass ceiling. I was an alcoholic long before I knew I was, I think. I I think I left college addicted. I think a lot of people know how much partying goes on 
in college, and it's hard to disaggregate who has a problem and who doesn't because we're all binge drinking to such excess in college. And so it definitely wasn't until after college when people started to move on with their lives and not go out at night that I developed this kind of persona, a kind of Holly Golightly, you know, Karen from Will and Grace type persona where I I would go out every night and I would be the hilarious, you know, girl about town and all those other people who were going home at night were lame (laughs) in my mind. And, you know, I said yes to every invitation. I outlasted anyone at any given party because I was so convinced that, you know, something great might happen and I didn't want to miss it. And and in the meantime, I was pursuing uh, my career in journalism, and I had the I and I thought hard about it. It was my work hard, play hard philosophy, and uh, you know, when, <laughs> in your twenties is is a little doable. It was for me. Um, I would have this regimen in the morning where I would take all these vitamins and like <laughs> cure my hangover, and then go to work and do as little as possible to get away with still being employed. And, like, every two weeks I'd take a day off because I deserved it. And mm-hmm. at night I would just party and drink with friends. To me it was definitely an identity. It wasn't, like, to cure my shyness or home alone in front of the TV or something. It was, it was like a personality I had always wanted. And I knew I was so cool. I mean, that's the thing. I thought I was so cool. And and I really believed that. And I thought I led this colorful and exciting life that other people uh, were not leading. <laughs> and I've had a few dark experiences when drunk. I, I did uh, drugs when I was drunk, mostly because I was drunk and made bad decisions. Alcohol is definitely my drug of choice, but I got into a lot of sketchy situations that should have scared me straight and didn't. And by the time I quit I ha- for good, I had already tried everything else. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. getting sober was like the last option. And uh, so I, you know, tried moderating. I'd have a glass of water with every glass of booze and I would only drink on weekends and not weeknights and, you know, all of these self-imposed rules. And I could never stick to them. I mean, it was out of hand. There was no way I could control my drinking myself. And it wasn't even that once I got a little tipsy, I needed more, more, more. It was that first sip that something happened in my brain and it was showtime. And as soon as I had a little bit, you you didn't know what kind of night I was going to have. You know, it might be a couple drinks with friends or it might be coming home at dawn. And, and I couldn't predict any longer which kind of night it would be. When I did quit for good, I went into a bar on a Sunday night at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Sorry, not night. I remember telling my boyfriend I would be home for 60 minutes <laughs> mm-hmm. and drank in, through the evening and went to other bars, went dancing, and I ended up leaving a bar that was in a basement at 7 in the morning and being surprised to see that the sun was out. I had just no concept of 
how much time had passed. And you can imagine the kind of bar that's open on a Sunday night going into Monday all night long. It was horrifying. It was That was the wake-up call. And the irony is that I have had darker experiences. But that was just the moment where I had had enough, where I realized that this had to stop for good. And then let, let me just say this. My resolve was not, like, sure and perfect <laughs> immediately the way I just made it sound. It was briefly in moments, but especially early in sobriety, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to drink when Peter, my boyfriend, and my husband, when Peter goes out of town, I'll drink. And so I won't drink very much because he's around a lot, but, like, I can still have that secretly. And, and then I, like, was like, when the hell is he going to go out of town? And, and I was waiting for that. And I, so I really kind of secretly planned to relapse. By the time he left town, <laughs> I had put together six months. And suddenly, and also after six months, you're thinking a lot more clearly. You know, I wasn't so interested in planning my relapse anymore. I was you know, feeling better. I was never hung over, which is, I just can't even tell you how much I'm not, I'm not ever going to get over that. Every morning I wake up unhung over is like the greatest news in the world. And so at six months over, I kind of realized that I wasn't going to relapse. And so when he went out of town, I made a lot of plans with other people and, and dug deep. I also went a long time without going to any kind of 12-step program. I was familiar with that because of my father, and it just sounded a little culty to me, and, and I, I, I was scared of it. And then I started shopping a lot, <laughs> and I got into a wild amount of debt. And a part of it was me thinking I deserved it because I was so good to quit drinking. I was so strong, and I got into so much debt. By the time my husband, and then he was my husband, found out, it was the lie was out of control. I was playing three-card Monty with all my credit cards and, and just living this lie, and I talked to my dad about it, and he said, you know, I don't think you're really sober. I think you're just dry. And so for me, a 12-step program, even a couple years into sobriety, became a touchstone for me in terms of principles that I just didn't have. And so even though I had quit the booze, I didn't have a true north or a moral compass. And so the you know, learning in a 12-step program to be rigorously honest was huge for me. I am not um, orthodox about it. I, uh, I, I, I kind of go when I please, and I'm definitely probably the more lackadaisical side of the 12-step program, but I can tell you that without it, I wasn't taking a hard look at myself, and it forced me to do that. And in the book, I make a, a point of talking about it because I never wanted anyone to get the impression that I just up and got sober, like, without any help at all, because that just wasn't the case. I was just replacing alcohol with shopping, and if it wasn't shopping, it would have been, been something else. I would have found something right. until I got right with myself. So that's my story, ladies. Ladies. 
Do you ever wish for a little bit of recovery inspiration on the go? Tiny Bubbles is a new podcast that brings you the best bits of the Bubble Hour podcast in quick little episodes, just 15 minutes long, but packed with wisdom, insight, and encouragement to live your life wholeheartedly and alcohol-free. Look for Tiny Bubbles wherever you get podcasts and subscribe today. Tiny Bubbles. Little bits of recovery goodness brought to you by the Bubble Hour. Sometimes all you need is a little pep talk so you can get back to living that beautiful life you're building. Your book gave me so much hope just because I was able to see that life could be better sober. It really could. And I just, I really was curious, just after reading your book, if you knew all that you do today, what would you have done differently your first year of sobriety? Would you have done anything differently? Maybe going about it a different way? And the reason why I'm asking is because I kind of white knuckled through my first six months. And looking back on it now, I realize that I wish I had done what a lot of people do, which is go to rehab. I think it really would have been an easier, softer way. Of course, I know everything happens the way it's supposed to, but I just wonder what your what your thoughts were on this. Yeah, I have initially when I was in, introduced to the twelve step world, I had some rehab envy. It was, it's like a it's like a <laughs> diet, and that's the jump start. And right, and I, I definitely had that. I also liked the idea of leaving home, like to go to a retreat and like heal. I thought that sounded very nice. I, I, I know more now. I know that they're not retreats. <laughs> and, that, um, and that you actually have to be really careful about the kind of rehab you choose. And I just want to say, to be clear, since I read about the science of addiction, that you should always choose a rehab that has a medical doctor on staff and prescribes medication. Because otherwise you're paying a lot of money for you know, art therapy. <laughs> Not to diss art therapy, but you should be careful about what rehabs you pick. Anyway, I did have rehab envy. The other thing I would have done differently is ask for help a lot sooner. I was um, I was going about it so hard. I was white-knuckling it. I mean, I didn't know that there was an easier way. And so I wish I had asked for help, but I was stubborn. Hi, this is Sabelle, and Sasha, I just loved your book so much. I could really relate to it. I related to the party girl identity and the rush, 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 and keeping really busy. And I think that's ultimately what led me to recovery was just that the whole party girl thing just became too too hard on, on myself and too much. I wanted to ask you about how you talk about, in Chapter 3, you describe a subway scene where you see a young man dressed up as a woman. And you talk mm-hmm. about this idea of having a double soul. And what you say, I have it quoted here, I wasn't special. I was simply a whole person tearing herself in two. And that really resonated with me because I feel like at the end of my thinking, I felt like two people. I would almost watch myself from the outside. Mm-hmm. And as I engaged in my alcoholic behavior, and I appeared to have it together, you know, it all together on the outside, but I was really in a lot of pain on the inside. So in sobriety, I've had a chance to kind of merge this dual persona 
or as you called the double soul, and you said choosing sobriety gave me myself back. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah, I, I had resume, Sasha, and vampire, Sasha. You know, <laughs> on, on paper, I looked really good, uh, and I was making all the right moves. Um, but my life was a mess. I mean, I had no money. I was out of control in terms of my drinking every night and doing all sorts of terrible things to myself and staying up to all hours and just making a lot of bad decisions that didn't match my daytime life. And that really wasn't compatible with it. And I think, you know, by the time I quit at 32, I was literally unable to sustain the energy <laughs> to make both those things happen. And I would have lost the resume, Sasha, very quickly if I hadn't quit when I did. And I, and I think I saw that in myself. But when, yeah, when I was drinking, I even kind of fetishized the double soul. Like I, I did kind of think I was more interesting secretly than the people working around me, you know, who were just going to go home and, like, watch TV. Lame. And, and so I, I, I definitely thought that that was, you know, excellent. It got harder, though. I had to keep certain friends away from certain other friends. Yeah. I had mm-hmm. to lie a lot to protect different identities. And in terms of my work ethic, I was just drowning. I mean, it's hungover and exhausted all the time. And so I definitely had this twin soul. And when I got sober, it occurred to me that now I never had to do that again. I never had to keep friends apart. I never had to lie about where I was. I never had to like bring an entire bottle of aspirin wherever I went. It was revelatory that I could just be one person. And for a long time, I did have the the dual persona. And when I saw the man on the subway who had also a dual persona, I related to him. And, And like I say, when I got sober and I could be one person, it was a surprise. I actually thought something was wrong with me, that I had some unique bifurcated, you know, personality disorder. And so it was amazing in sobriety to be like, you know what? I don't have a twin soul. I am actually one whole person. Wow. And and that was news to me. Just so true. I mean, I think so many people can relate to that feeling. And even better, that revelation that comes after it. I wondered also, in, in Chapter 4, Tilly and Sabelle and I have laughed about this today. We love your words. You're so funny. But in Chapter 4, you write about smoking imaginary pot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty familiar. And, and and we just loved it. We thought it was really funny. And Savelle especially loves to smoke invisible doobies. I don't know. It really seems to, maybe it's the, the breathing and the... Exactly. Um, you're, the you're breathing of, deeply. <laughs> to this. And for a moment, you almost really feel like you're there, you know. And I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the tools that you use today that help you navigate a life without alcohol. Because I think... Of course, the first part, I mean, people need to expect that it's not going to be the easiest thing ever, but there are ways to make a new life, and there are new tools, and I just wondered if you would share a little bit about what you do now to navigate your life. Sure, other than smoke imaginary (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Um, We can all do that, right? (laughs) 
I, I think first and foremost, knowing other sober people keeps me sane and sober. I have a network of girlfriends. Nothing against men, but I definitely um, have a special bond with all my sober women friends and, and relate to their stories more. And they definitely provide, I think, the groundwork for me to be sober because that's a person or persons I can call if I'm feeling edgy, if I feel like I need help, if I'm worried I'm going to drink. And I know that it's like no questions asked. They're there for me. Even if I don't know them that well, that's what's so wonderful. And that helps me truly more than just about anything. I also found that hobbies, I didn't have hobbies. You know, I just drank. <laughs> it's like hung out. Like, yeah. If you had asked me what I like to do, I mean, it would just involve drinking or like partying. And so um, discovering myself ended up being fun, like having hobbies. I, I like to garden. I like to go running. This is, you know, new information. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> what? I like hobbies? Right, exactly. I mean, before, if you had asked me, I would have been like, you know, I read or whatever. I don't think I would have <laughs> anything beyond a mundane answer. And, and when you're sober, you do feel like you have time to, like, devote to things. So you can take classes or, you know, indulge your whimsies. So I found that also was an excellent tool for sobriety. I, I did hope sobriety would turn me into a morning person, Still, still waiting for that to happen. <laughs> My main tool is really the is the network, and and that you know comes from going to twelve step meetings. But yeah, I'm I still struggle with things like higher power and and the more kind of esoteric parts of a twelve step program. But I never ever stop loving the fact that I know all these women. It's just a huge huge relief. Care is a new collection of recovery readings inspired by the Bubble Hour. If you love the encouragement and support you find here on this podcast, then this new book is for you. Visit thebubblehour.com for more information or check the show notes for a link to purchase. You'll find Take Good Care on Amazon Worldwide. Take Good Care, recovery reading inspired by the Bubble Hour, the perfect gift for yourself and friends. Others find the message of recovery we champion on the Bubble Hour. Plus, get access to the entire backlist ad-free by joining us on Patreon. Patron support helps with the ongoing expense of making free versions of the show available, as well as the cost to make new content like our spin-off podcast, Tiny Bubbles. Become a Bubble Hour patron today at patreon.com slash thebubblehour and help us help others through stories of strength and hope. We have Mary from Maryland here. Sasha, it's awesome to talk to you. After I read your book, I could have been the president of your fan club. <laughs> I, I read it early in sobriety, and, it was, I, and I was laughing. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to be able to laugh the longer I'm sober. It's going to be great. The quote that I read, what I wanted that stuck out for me was you said something, a surprising thing happened when I stopped feeling entitled to things. I gained more than I ever knew I wanted. 
because finally, for the first time and gratefully, all that I have, I came by honestly. And I just love mm-hmm. that. And it, it kind of made me think further that, you know, you had to become vulnerable and open and ask for help and things like that. And I was just wondering, how was that for you? Because, I mean, I, I think it's hard for those of us in recovery to admit that we need help or just be open to someone else's opinion. Yeah, no, it's a great question, Mary. I think it is hard. I mean, when I, first of all, I, I, I put off going to any kind of 12-step, getting any kind of help. And then when I did go to one, I didn't say a word. I felt excluded. Of course I wasn't, but I even thought no one gave me their phone numbers. And it was funny, like a couple of years ago, I was, I was cleaning out my drawers and I found this pamphlet that was like, welcome, and it had like 50 numbers on it. And I had just like shoved it in a drawer and like pretended nobody reached out to me. And that's how I remember it, which is crazy, because obviously these people did reach out to me. And then when I tried to go again, it took everything I had to say, how does this work? Like, do I need a sponsor? What's the story? And I was so terrified of it. I, I wanted, like, 12-step for dummies. I wanted, a, you know, orientation, like at icebreakers and everything. So it was hard. And I think maybe that's just part of it is, like, saying out loud that you need help is hard. And maybe that is also at the heart of the matter. So <laughs> it was hard to ask for help, but I recommend it. <laughs> it's a lot harder to do it without help. <laughs> This is a question that came in from Catherine. She wanted to talk about the scene that you wrote in your book about going to your friend's house for the first dinner after you got sober and you were accosted by alcohol before and during and after the meal and then ended up with an alcohol-soaked dessert. This is, I mean, the name of our show is The Bubble Hour, and somebody may or may not have explained the origin of that, but we talk about this is something that Lisa actually created was the idea that you need to keep yourself in a bubble, especially when you're newly sober, but really all the time and what sort of tools you put into that bubble to help you stay sober, whether or not you're at an alcohol-soaked dinner or not. But that's sort of become a theme. We've created pictures of things in our bubble, and we share them a lot with each other as part of our own network. And we talk about what we put in there and when to be social and how to create workable boundaries. Maybe you can comment a little on that, maybe from the perspective of early sobriety and now or how that's evolved for you? Sure. I didn't realize that other people don't understand alcoholism. (laughs) So I would go to someone's house for dinner, in this case my friend Joanna, um, and and expect them to say, okay, we know she quit drinking. She's an alcoholic. Like, hide the booze. And (laughs) I really expected that. I thought that would just be, like, polite. And so when she not only had a desi, a myriad of, you know, drinks to offer all her guests, but made cocoa vin and then made, like, a dessert that had pure alcohol in it, it, I felt attacked. And and it was just ignorance. It It was just her not realizing that that would bother me, which when I explained it to her, she felt horrible. I mean, she's not a bad person. And although in that moment, I really thought she was. <laughs> I was really certain that she was just messing with me. How dare she? Right. And I mean, I was on the verge of tears at one point. Like, I can't believe you're still serving me alcohol. Like, get every turn. And I, and I of course, couldn't eat it. And then I was like... 
hungry and irritable <laughs> and, you know, um, not in a good place. So I think I had to learn that other people are not going to act the way I want them to or expect them to. So I have to go in prepared for, you know, being in situations where there's alcohol, even, you know, relatively innocent situations like going to a friend's house uh, for dinner. And some of the tools I have is that, and I think maybe a lot of you will relate to this, is that when I need to leave, I need to leave the moment the thought occurs to me. (laughs) There's no wind down. There's no, let me just say goodbye to these few people. It's like, I'm out of here. And and so sometimes I just reach that point when I'm out socially that I need to be free of it. And so I I allow myself to do that. And I'll email hosts, you know, later and say, thanks for the great time. And, you know, nobody really notices. So that, that to me, and if I'm with people or with my husband, I say to them, like, when I'm out, I'm out. <laughs> right. I have to have an exit strategy. I also, you know, try to, I guess, embrace the fact that there's a diversity of people out there. And I'm, I'm always willing to talk about it. If somebody says, oh, I noticed you're not drinking, I don't make an excuse. I just say, yeah, I don't drink. <laughs> and sometimes I get into great conversations with people at, at a you know social event just because I've surprised them by being honest and, and not just talking about the weather. So, yeah, I found that as I grew more comfortable with talking about my own sobriety, it became also a self-fulfilling prophecy where I felt more comfortable doing sober things. And, you know, it's a real world out there. There's a lot of booze out there. It's not realistic to shield yourself from all of it. It is realistic to do that in the first six months to a year, (laughs) but afterwards you got to get out. But I would say, I mean, for weeks I couldn't go out (laughs) without the threat of relapse because I was such a mess. But that does get better really quickly. This is Ellie again. I'm laughing because I was thinking about um, early sobriety and and I, I was determined that I was not going to be able, that I wouldn't not do things just because I was an alcoholic in recovery and I was about 34 days sober and I went to my, I think it was my 20 year high school reunion or something. Wow. And, you know, you walk in the door and everybody makes a beeline to the bar and I just st- stood there frozen, like in the doorway, like this was a really bad idea. <laughs> but the primary emotion I felt was jealousy. It was like watching everybody in the room, like dancing with an ex-boyfriend or something. You know, I just couldn't, like you knew the ex-boyfriend was bad for you, but it didn't make it any easier to watch. You know, like it was just, I was just, it's like jealousy and rage were my two primary emotions for months on end. I, we have another call, if we could take that. Let's see, we have Kelly from Chicago. First, I want to say that, Sasha, I felt like you were reading my mind when you were talking about walking into the AA meeting and meeting AA for dummies. I'm contemplating going to my first AA meeting tomorrow, and I feel that tremendous fear, and I, I wish I could just go buy a book on AA for dummies. So that really spoke to me. But my question was around whether or not having a child has affected or changed your sobriety in any way. And and if you've had to develop new tools since having a child. That's a great question. I think everything to do with having a child just reinforces my sobriety. So I'll tell you about the good parts first. So first of all, when I got pregnant, I knew for sure that I hadn't been wasted. You know, like, that I, I had started out right from the start sober, that this baby was not contaminated in any way. 
And that was just this wonderful feeling that I conceived in pure sobriety and like that felt good and that it was a choice to have a baby and (laughs) not a surprise. And that was wonderful. Other things that were wonderful is, you know, if anything ever happens, I'm going to be alert. You know, sure, I can get sick and whatever, you know, things can happen where I'm not able to respond to an emergency, but I'm never going to be caught drunk or hungover when I need to handle something. And so, and so for me, being sober is also just being a good mother and being responsible because I can't handle drinking. So now there's someone else involved who depends for their life on me. And so that definitely reinforces my sobriety and makes me feel good about it. So the bad side is that Someday I'm going to have to talk to him about this, <laughs> and that scares me <laughs> to death. I think I will be completely honest. Of course, I mean, well, listen, I wrote a memoir, so it's not like I can hide it. <laughs> um, but that is uh, scary to think about, and I also I worry about him becoming an addict. Like even when he's like asking for more water, I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> he needs to have a bottle in his hand at all times, and. Uh, I would, so I'm already, like, psychotic about that. That's not good. <laughs> I need to chill on that and, like, let him be whoever he's going to be and hopefully not be an addict. But I definitely worry that he will be, and I also worry about talking to him about my own uh, past. But I will take those downsides any day to have this gift in my life and also to be sober and present for every moment of it, like... <clears throat> The phone rings at 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm there. I'm ready. (laughs) It's one of the best things about being sober is knowing I can be the mom that I need to be. Sasha, we talk a lot about the stigma of alcoholism Mm -hmm. and why women especially try to keep this buried. And it's always such a, it seems to be such a huge, big, dark secret. And I wondered if you had, if you would mind sharing a little bit about why you think we don't talk about addiction more often, especially women. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on this. I think, first of all, women are more self-conscious than men and care more about what other people think of them. And so right there you've got a problem in terms of being sensitive to sick. And, and then the other thing is, you know, depending on what you do for a living, there's still just a sense of being judged or having people wonder if you're doing your best because now they know you're an alcoholic. Of course, sober alcoholics are some of the best workers I know because they're, like, really committed to doing the right thing and taking the next right step. But a lot of people will just hear the word alcoholic or, you know, addict and jump to lots of conclusions and be wary of you. So I think that's why women don't talk about it. I also think that we are more forgiving of men than we are of women. I think Mm -hmm. women are the mothers. They're supposed to be responsible, you know. They, They don't spend the paycheck on booze. That's something like the town drunk did, the dad maybe did. And and so I just think that women get a bad rap. I mean, I look at like even starlets that <laughs> get in trouble with drinking. I mean, the girls never come back, but the guys always like do rehab and they're back in a movie. We judge mm-hmm. uh, women much more harshly and that's probably, it makes it even harder to get sober. I do think that we have a culture of anonymity that goes too far. 
I think we need to talk about it more. I think the more of us that come forward, the better, because I think a lot of people have an image of an alcoholic as what's on intervention, you know, or celebrity rehab. And and those mm-hmm. are really extreme examples of addiction, and I'll, the majority of us stop short of those kind of extremes. And I don't ever want someone to watch a lot of, like, those shows and think, well, I'm not there yet. So I guess, yeah. and I think that, you know, being having the wisdom to stop before you're in the gutter is a great thing. <laughs> no one says Absolutely. you have to have a low bottom. And so I think that... When I talk and when I come out, when I come out you know, uh, and say I'm an alcoholic, I'm challenging people's stereotype of what mm-hmm. an addict is, and I think right. that's important. I, I also think there's it, it's you know it's a it's a I've saturated my brain with alcohol and now I can't be trusted around it, and that is you know a disease, a, it's a chronic condition I have to manage, and it's nothing to be ashamed of now that mm-hmm. I'm living a good life. There was a lot of shame at first. But could you talk about more tools and just tools that you use today that help you navigate a life without alcohol? Sure. Well, smoking imaginary pot, I think, not only works because of the deep breaths, which is very good, but also because it's silly, and I think it just lightens you up when you're in a tense moment <laughs> right. and you need your imaginary pot. I originally <laughs> wrote fake pot, and then someone told me it can't be because then it would sound like I was actually smoking something, but it was fake. So I changed it to imaginary pot. But yeah, that's something I do. I, you know, I try to have a sober friend, you know, speed dial when I know I'm going into a perilous situation. For me, that often means work events Mm -hmm. where there are a lot of people drinking. I find that when you go out of town with work people, they're like away from their families and they're ready to party. (laughs) And and so I find being kind of trapped in a hotel with these people to be one of the hardest things in sobriety. And so I have to be in touch with someone and talk it through. Those are hard moments. But that's the biggest tool, again, is my network. And then, yeah, and then prayer, remembering why I do it. I participate on a gratitude email list. And, you know, again, it's just like every day I write five things I'm grateful for. And I try to make them deeper than, like, Diet Coke. The more you remember what you have, the less likely you are to want to lose it. So all all those things definitely help. You know, a lot of people express some fear about who to tell and when to tell and to kind of coming, quote, unquote, public. And even if it's not in a, you know, on a blog or in a book or in some broader forum, but even just amongst your family and friends. Can you just talk briefly about what your experience was as you kind of let people in your in your life know that you were sober and how mm-hmm. that process went and how you handled it? I think that's helpful for people to hear. Yeah, I think it is amazing. It is so much easier than you think it's going to be. People who didn't even think of you as an alcoholic or didn't know because you hid it, like your mm-hmm. mother maybe. It's, it's just never going to be a bad thing to say, I'm not drinking ever. <laughs> I've stopped drinking. Like, people are going to say, wow, that sounds good. Like, it's not like you're saying I've decided to start cutting myself or something. You're, you're <laughs> actually doing something really healthy. So uh, people's reactions are generally good. And people who see that you were drinking are very likely to be incredibly happy or even just relieved. And a lot of people 
when I got sober were relieved that I didn't even think they noticed I drank that much. And so (laughs) I was kind of a wake-up call for me in early sobriety, too, to have people be like, oh, good, you were out of control. (laughs) Right. You know, like, really? You noticed that? I barely know you. So I found it to be a softer landing than I thought it was going to be. I think I really encourage people with their immediate circle or people they trust to to go ahead and tell. And I would never break someone else's anonymity, but to me, being public about it is the right thing to do. But, you know, so in terms of blogs or or Facebook or something, I mean, it's very hard to be anonymous these days. But, um, you know, if it's important to you, that's also a great sign of humility, I think. But to each his own. (laughs) Take what you need, leave the rest. (laughs) I just want to thank you, Sasha, because it's a great service that you're doing for everybody. I certainly got a lot out of it just because I could identify so much. And it just kind of feels like, you know, when you're drinking, you're in such a lonely place. And when you come to sobriety and you realize there's all these other really cool people out there, it's just wonderful. And so thank you so much for taking the time to be with us in the show. And I just learned so much from even listening to you tonight. Well, thanks for having me. You guys were great, and you had great questions. Let me just say that one of the reasons I wrote the book and why I wanted that voice to be out there was because I think that every time I read a book about addiction, it really is the person is in the gutter. (laughs) And like in the last chapter, they miraculously get sober. And whether, you know, it's Hunter Thompson or James Fry. I mean, even James Fry had to lie in order to get a book deal. So, like, <laughs> right. right. And I felt like I, I, there wasn't a voice out there that was just the everyday alcoholic who didn't lose her right. fashion prizes. And, mm-hmm. and so, and I knew that a lot of people would probably relate to that. So it, it actually, it made me feel more confident in writing it because I felt like if I feel this way and I'm not unique, then other people will feel this way. <laughs> Absolutely. It's so refreshing, too, to have a glimpse into you know, the concept of being able to tell, talk about your first year of recovery also. I mean, that's, I found that to be, I mean, I was nodding my head over and over again. I kept, I kept nudging my husband as a total normie. I mean, he's, he couldn't take it or leave it. And I don't, it infuriates me. And I don't understand it at all. But I would read him passages and he would just sort of look at me like, oh, okay. He didn't just, it just explained what was sort of in my heart and in my head so well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll just say that one of my favorite scenes from your book was when, and I can't remember how sober you were, but you talk about sort of lying awake at night and thinking about like the fragility of the universe and how yeah. significant we all are. <laughs> and I was laughing as I read that because Amanda, Amanda, who is the call screener, she hasn't been a live co-host yet, but she will. And I grew up together and now we're both sober together. And we, at 10 years old, we're sitting and having these conversations about, you know, the fragility of the universe and how small we all are. And then we grew up to be alcoholics and then we grew up to be sober women. <laughs> I'm just like, it's always so nice to know you're not the only one who exactly. has these thoughts. And those came roaring out at me in sobriety, all these things I had anesthetized for years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had read a lot of addiction and alcoholism, active alcoholism memoirs, and I loved them. But your your take on being honest about the emotions and things that surfaced during recovery, especially early recovery, was really refreshing. I loved it. I'm so glad. Thank you. Thanks, all of you. The main thing I carried with me from your book was the hope of having happiness and sobriety. It was really and truly the most refreshing recovery book I've read. 
And I've read, I believe I've read every single recovery book on the market. Thank you again, Sasha. We really appreciate your time. My Thank pleasure. You, okay, Thanks good night. Thanks for listening. Good night. Good night. I did that, not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness had on me. In a dark corner is where shame lies to hide. We think you're strong just cause you'll keep it on the side. It just stays in wait there to rob you of your pride. Turn the light on, turn the light on, you can shine. When you I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Oh, yes, head on You don't have to shout it out on Main Street to be clear You don't need to whisper to confession there Tattoos looking at you in the mirror And the one who matters most can always hear When you say I old, different Not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from the power Oh, yes, I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power